Let's, uh, let's stand up, we'll pray, and we'll get into the scriptures. So, Lord, thank you for your goodness and your grace, your presence, your power, your love, your life. Just ask for it to flow mightily and powerfully through us and in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Be seated. So, Colossians chapter 1, I'm going to rehash some old stuff, which is actually new stuff, because there aren't too many people. There actually is a lot of people around the world that are coming into this same revelation. There aren't too many people in Pueblo. <laughs> Shocker, I know. Um, I don't think Pueblo has ever been known for being on the cutting edge of anything. Except maybe marijuana growing. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm just talking about the receptivity to what we're doing. Um, so, But I think it's so clear in Scripture. Uh, so hopefully, my, my, my hope is I can bring it forth in such a way that maybe you'll see it differently. Or if you haven't seen it before, your eyes will be open to it. Because I think it's so powerful. So Colossians chapter 1 and uh, verse 25, Paul says this, the writer of Colossians, he says, I have become the church's servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness. Notice that phrase, the word of God in its fullness, right? Paul says that's what I'm trying to do. What is the word of God in its fullness? He tells you. In fact, in the... This translation, there's a line, a horizontal line connecting this thought to the next thought, meaning this is the summary of the Word of God in its fullness. You ready? The mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but now is disclosed to the Lord's people. I'm going to stop right there. Paul is not preaching something new. Paul is preaching something that existed but was kept hidden. You cannot hide something that was not in existence. So he's preaching a reality, a mystery, a secret that existed for ages and generations, but was kept hidden for ages and generations. Now, this presents a problem for our Western Christianity, right here in the Bible. Imagine that. Because, because, Paul is of the same generation, or a few years after at least, Christ. He's of the same generation as the apostles, the disciples, the twelve. So, the basis of everything that we're taught says that Jesus brought something that didn't exist before into existence. That somehow the gospel is about the historical person of Jesus and the events surrounding his life. But Paul, watch this, he's not saying this is part of the word of God. I mean, it's so plain. Like, how did I not see this before? He says the word of God in its fullness is the mystery which was hidden for ages and generations. So it might be something that Jesus revealed or that Christ revealed, but it's not something that he established. It can't be. You see it? But now has been disclosed to the Lord's people. Not made available, not brought into existence, not established by some historical person or some historical event. A reality that always existed for generations, but now is being disclosed. Are you breathing? I'm just reading the Bible. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles. People that weren't believers. People that weren't Jewish. People that didn't know about Messiah. God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery. What mystery? The mystery that's been hidden for generations and ages. What's the mystery? Which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. (laughs) So, so you gotta insert, so you could take Christ in you, the hope of glory, and insert that for mystery. And then you would read, Christ in you, the hope of glory, has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of Christ in you, the hope of glory. So, 
So, literally what this is saying is that Christ was in every person prior to Jesus. And every person outside of the covenant or the faith. That Christ is actually woven into the nature of every human being since the time of Adam. But it was hidden. So the fullness of the Word of God is to disclose to you not so much the Christ of history, but the Christ that's in you. Plain and simple. (laughs) Now watch. Going on, uh, I just want to read um, verse 8 of chapter 2. Because I want to contrast two realities for you. Verse 8, he says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. What is Christ? Christ is the imago Dei. That's Latin for the image of God. Christ is the image of God imprinted on every person in the deepest part of every person's consciousness interwoven into every human being. Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female, Christ is all and in all, Paul says in another place. Are you breathing? (laughs) Then he says there are philosophies. Everybody say philosophy. There are philosophies, watch this, that can literally take you captive. That can take you captive. That can hold you in bondage. (laughs) That can imprison you. That depend upon two things. Human tradition. What is tradition? Tradition is a group consensus passed down. We celebrate, okay, so we all have traditions in our family, right? So we celebrate Christmas collectively as a culture, right? If you celebrate Christmas, you celebrate it the same day. <laughs> like you don't just pick, I'm going to celebrate Christmas in September. I mean, you're free to do that, but as a general rule, that's not what happens, (laughs) right? Everybody does their Christmas shopping because there's this one day that we as a group have consented will be the day that we identify as Christmas. And it passes down from generation to generation. Therefore, it is a tradition. Now, you might have family traditions. Our family tradition is to celebrate together as the Tomlinson family on Christmas Eve. And I remember going over to the Tomlinsons when I was really little. My grandma and grandpa Tomlinson on Christmas Eve was a group consensus among the family that was handed down. That is a tradition. Got it? Inside that tradition is a philosophy. So it depends. So in order for a philosophy to take you captive, it depends upon something. I really want you to see this. It depends upon group consensus and participation from generation to generation to keep it alive. A philosophy has no power to take you captive if it does not have group consensus and it does not have generations. The other thing it says there is it depends on the elemental spiritual forces. Well, what in the world are elemental spiritual forces? Glad you asked that question. In the ancient world, their cosmology was made up of four elements. Earth air, fire, water. In the Greco-Roman world, those elements also represented aspects of the human being. Earth being clearly the body, air being thought, water being emotion, and fire being passion. 
Are you breathing? It was believed that there were spiritual forces, and in fact there are spiritual forces that are behind the elements called elementals that influence your thought, your feeling, your passion, and your behavior. Are you breathing? Yes. Spiritual forces, living entities in the earth that influence us. In every level of our being. So in order for a philosophy to take you captive, it has to depend upon what? Tradition, group consensus, passed down, and elemental spiritual forces. Those things give support to philosophies that have the power to take you captive. And they're depending upon those things for their existence. They are not rooted in the nature and the reality of Christ, which is the fullness of the Word of God, which is the mystery kept hidden from ages and generations, which is part of your very own being and the part of every human being on the planet. And that is the fullness of the Word of God and the Gospel that Paul was talking about. And he's saying, beware, take care, but don't, don't be taken captive by that. Now, I want to introduce to you the concept of a thought form. Everybody just say with me, thought form. Now, I'm going to use that in place of the term philosophy. What is a thought form? Now, do thoughts have energy? Perfect example. Um, If you get a card from your child or your grandchild, small child or grandchild that they made in school... It's a handmade card. Mother's Day, Father's Day. Mommy, I love you. Daddy, I love you. And they give you that card. How many of us, maybe not everybody, or grandma and grandpa, a lot of us save those, right? Why do we save those? Because that thought has an energy, has an emotion, has an impact that is transferred from the heart of that child to the paper and then given to you. If you go to the doctor and the doctor says, you have cancer and you've got six weeks to live. That's a thought. Does it have energy? Does it impact you? You better believe it does. Right? So, our thoughts, if you ever gotten angry at something, and you express that, okay, some of you are too saintly, but... Anyone here with a Scotch-Irish background? (laughs) I don't know, other backgrounds may have it, but I know mine better than any. Does it have an energy to it? Could you say then that it has a life to it? But it it can be short-lived. So thoughts have different degrees of of energetic charge would gives them a certain lifespan. Mm-hmm. Are we good? Anybody ever had a problem that you wanted to quit, any kind of habit, and had difficulty? Because it had a life of its own, right? That you created initially, but it eventually took you captive. That's just your thoughts. Now, the idea in the ancient world, and I think this is true cosmology, that we are all sending these thought forms out and they gather together. Let me read it to you how a modern... Uh, 20th century author put, put this. Let's see if I can see this. Every thought of man, upon being evolved, passes into the inner world and becomes an active entity by associating itself, coalescing, we might term it, with an elemental. 
That is to say, with one of the semi-intelligent forces of the kingdoms. It survives as an active intelligence, a creature of the mind's begetting, for a longer or shorter period, proportionate with the original intensity of the cerebral action which generated it. Now, that's a lot of fancy words, but I want you to see what it's what they're saying there. That every thought has a life of its own, and it coalesces with other like thoughts, and is supported and given life by an elemental spirit. That's exactly what Paul is talking about. So, we're not just talking about an idea. When he's talking about philosophy, we're not just talking about an idea. <laughs> and philosophy... Sophia is wisdom or thought or ID. And philo or philly is love. It's the love and devotion to a thought. It's the love and devotion to an idea that keeps it on life support. That keeps feeding it and keeps it alive. That then an elemental spirit or force sustains and uses to what? To take you captive. To take you captive. Alright, let's leave that alone for a minute. I want to just let that settle. I'm going to shift. I'm going to change channels. And then we're going to come back to that channel. And then for the finale, we'll bring them all out and let them bow together. Do you get that? Come with me to Philippians chapter 2. This is, the passage I'm about to read to you, is considered by Bible scholars to be the oldest belief statement of Christianity. If I were to say a creedal statement, if you came from a Catholic background or something, you'd know what I mean. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, these were all statements of this is what we believe as Christians. This is what makes you a Christian. If you agree to this, this is what makes you a Christian. This is the oldest creedal statement. It's one of the oldest portions of the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this. He says, verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. He doesn't say let Christ Jesus be in you. He doesn't even say let Christ be in you because the issue is not Christ being in you because Christ has always been in you. The issue is that the mind that Jesus embodied also is in you. Because without the mind of Christ, the power and reality of Christ in you has no vehicle of expression. The issue is not to get something outside of you, be it Jesus, be it Christ, be it the Holy Spirit, be it whatever. The issue is not to get something outside of you, in you. The issue is to get what's in you, out of you, and the only way to do it is to transform your consciousness. Let this mind be in you that also was in Christ Jesus. Now, God help our translations. No wonder Christians are confused. This one says, who being in the very nature of God did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. That is not at all what that means. You go back to your older translations, the Dewey Reims, the Young's Literal Translation, even the King James gets it better. This is one where King Jimmy got it right. Because there were less generations of philosophy and group consensus and tradition to get in the way. Yeah. Let's just sit and think on that one for a minute. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, is what it actually says. Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Thought it not robbery to be equal with God. What is robbery? Take something that does not belong to you. All right, let's insert that who being in the form of God, did not think he was taking something that did not belong to him by being equal with God. Let me say that again. Who being in the form of God, did not think it taking something to himself that did not belong to him to be equal with God. It's the exact opposite of what the translators are trying to tell you. 
who being in the form of God, did not think he was taking something that didn't belong to him by saying he was equal with God. I and the Father are one. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The works that I do, it's not I that do it, but it's the Father that dwelleth within me. He doeth the works. That's fine for Jesus, but you go out and tell your Christian friends that. Go out and tell somebody that. If you've seen me, you've seen God. I and the Father are one. All right, let's try it this way. We're okay with Jesus is the Son of God. And we're okay being sons and daughters of God, right? Okay, well, let's do it this way. Cows give birth to cows. So their sons are cows. Giraffes give birth to giraffes. So their sons are giraffes. God gives birth to... But you go out and say you're a God, and people freak out. Even though they'll go around claiming they're children of God and sons of God and all that other stuff. They they, they don't even think. Why? Because the captivity of philosophies that have depended upon the traditions of men and have depended upon group consensus being passed down from generation to generation and have depended thought forms that have depended on elemental spiritual forces and have depended upon allegiance. All right. We'll come back to that. Have gotten in the way. Because <laughs> he says, let this mind be in you which also was in Christ. Who being in the, so in other words, for you, you should think in the same way that you being in the form of God, created in his image and after his likeness, should not think it robbery to call yourself equal with God. That is the oldest creedal statement of Christianity that we have. It's the closest, most original, closest to the source. Rather, he made himself nothing. Now watch this. So, in other words, even though he was equal with God, he didn't go around parading it over everybody else. He made himself nothing. Literally, it's a Greek word, kenosis. Oh, Jesus. It doesn't mean made himself nothing. It doesn't mean that. Kenosis means to pour out to others. So watch this. He used his equality with God not to lord over you. Listen to this statement. He did not use his equality with God in order to lord over you. But rather to take that godness, if you will, and empty it out in service towards you. By taking the nature of a servant and becoming obedient to death, even the death on the cross. If I say obedient, what what does that mean to you? He had to do it. God said do it, and so he had to obey and do it. That's not what the word means. Lord, help us. No wonder we're confused. Almost makes you think there are powers that be that are trying to hide something from you. Maybe a mystery that's been hidden from ages and from generations. (laughs) Trying to put it back in the box. Because watch this. Because... It means to remain faithful to a truth, not to obey a command like a like a child to an adult or a or a slave to a leader, but to be obedient to a truth. Now, think about your gospel stories. Why did they kill Jesus in John's gospel? Why why did they want to kill Jesus? Jesus asked him, John, I think chapter ten. He says, "Which of the works that I do do you want to kill me?" And they said, for none of the works that you do do we want to kill you, but because you being a man make yourself equal with God. So watch. He wouldn't move away from his belief and confidence in who he was, even though it resulted in his crucifixion and death. That's what they're saying. Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God... 
did not think he was taking something that did not belong to him by saying that he was equal with God. But he did not lord it over you either, but he poured it out for you, taking upon himself the form of a servant, and he stayed faithful to his identity and his mission, even unto death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, And gave him the name that is above every name. Now watch this. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You know what else is missing? There's a complete word left out in the Greek. They completely leave out a word. They just flat omit it in the English translation. Because what it says there is that every knee will joyfully bow. And willingly confess. That he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's not him imposing his will finally on, on these vile human beings that are against him, but he comes in flaming vengeance and imposes his will and now finally every knee and tongue and the... But see, if you, if you, if, if you put in there if you translate it from the Greek that it's joyful and that it's willing, then you have to begin to think about at least this idea of total reconciliation that everything in creation ultimately finds salvation. Are you still breathing? Can I do one more thing with you? I think this is, I'm saying all this to get to this. Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. I just can't even use that translation. Sorry. Revelation 5, 6, right? And I look, I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne, or in the center of the throne, not on the throne, 99.999% of the Christian world, when they read this, they think the Lamb is on the throne. But it actually says the Lamb is in the throne. In the center of the throne. And of the four living creatures. And in the center of the elders. Stood a Lamb as though it had been slain. Having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent into all the earth. That is not Jesus, the man. John does not see Jesus sitting on the throne in heaven. I hate to disappoint you. And there was silence in Pueblo for a space of time. Yeah, I know. It's a lot. No, it's a lot to absorb because we believe, but this... And there's not even a lamb on the throne. It, it's symbolic language. It's symbolic. It's not a real lamb. You're not going to get to heaven and see... With some out of a Stephen King novel with seven horns and eyes everywhere. And oh my God. Did I die and go to heaven or hell? I'm not sure. He doesn't see Jesus. I know you think Jesus is the Lamb, but you have to impose that on the text. You have to impose that on the text. It is symbolic. What is a Lamb? A Lamb has a gentle nature and doesn't lord over anybody. 
Because what you're seeing described is the mind of Christ. What you're seeing described is the Christ that's in everything. That's why it's in the center of the throne and in the center of the living creatures and in the center of the elders, and we could keep going, and in the center of you and in the center of every human being you ever encounter, whether they know it or manifest it or not. Having seven eyes. Eyes has to do with consciousness, awareness, sight, revelation. Seven horns. Your your Bible people say horns represent power, and I'm sure it can because you know full-grown rams can get into fights with lock horn lock horns, so it can represent strength or power. Sure, it can. But also, if you think about it. It is, it is, it is something coming out of the skull, the front part of the skull that's pointing upward. So it can also represent an ascended thinking or a thought that's coming from above. It all represents this Christ consciousness or this mind of Christ. And that is what's controlling the government of heaven. A lamb-like nature, a gentle nature, a soft nature, as though it had been slain. Not slain, as though it had been slain. Why? Because in humanity, for most of us, that nature has been slain. Most of us don't let that nature come out and find expression. We're too busy trying to lord over people. We're too busy trying to control circumstances and outcomes and control people and get people to believe like us and think like us and do like us and act like us. And that nature doesn't find expression. But in that nature, when we give it expression, there's full awareness. There's full... There's everything. And it's to that that the elders bow and take their crowns and lay them down. It's amazing. It's beautiful. So the degree to which you've experienced God, the degree to which you've experienced Christ in reality, is the degree to which you have come into contact with the consciousness of Christ or the mind of Christ or the Lamb that's in the center of everything, including the center of you. That's reality. But there's this other thing that we've been talking about, these philosophies, these thought forms that take people into captivity. So here's what I want to suggest to you. What if... Religion and much of the church world and even the Jesus that many people worship has nothing to do with Christ and all it is is a living, gigantic thought form that has taken on a life of its own and depends upon tradition, which is group consensus handed down from generation to generation and depends on elemental spiritual forces for its survival. Now, can we just take a minute and contrast these two? See, this is why the Lamb is not trying to lord over you. So if you don't believe like them, the Lamb's not upset. If you don't think like them, the lamb's not going to come get you and break fellowship with you. If you're not, if you, if you go to the drag races for free food and beer instead of going to church, the lamb isn't going, bah, 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 bah. you need to come back, you need to come back, you need to come back, we need you. But watch this. If something is a thought form, if it's a philosophy that depends on tradition, then it depends on your agreement. And just like I said, you remember how the card that your child gives you has an energy in it because of the love and the devotion and the thought and the emotion behind it. And, and just like, just like your, 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 your habit has, has a power over you. You, do you, do you understand that, that if that thing consists of our thoughts, if it consists of our energies, if it consists of our devotions, what do you think it eats? What do you think it feeds upon? It feeds upon more people thinking about it and more people worshiping it and more people being devoted to it. 
And more people agreeing that, yes, we agree, this is the way it's always been. It depends upon generational agreement. The mind of Christ, the, the reality of Christ depends on none of that. you got to think like me. you got to believe like me. We don't believe that. And if you don't believe that, you departed from the faith, you're a heretic, whatever, whatever. Why is it you can... You, you, what breaks up more Christian relationships, churches, and friendships than I don't quite see something the same? I don't see an idea or a thought the same way you do. It does not matter if you were there holding their hand in the darkest hour of their life. It does not matter how devoted or loyal you are to them. It does not depend on love. It does not depend on service. It depends on agreement. Bless God. And you could be a rotten person. Go out in the community and treat people terribly. But if you agree with us, that makes you part of our club, and you're one of us, and you're a Christian. You may not be a Christ-like one. You may not be connecting with the mind of Christ, but you believe like us. You keep the faith that's been given for generations to generations, so therefore you're one of us, so hey, it's all good. So then what if when we come together and we're worshiping, what if we're feeding the beast? Or we come together and Bible studies at times, what if we're just feeding the beast? Or sometimes if we're praying, what if we're just feeding the beast? Yeah, this, I, I knew this wouldn't go over very good. It's difficult for us because, listen, these philosophies don't just gently let you go. They take you captive. And that's why if you break with the consensus, if you break with the thought, you break with the consensus, they've got to go get you. Or they'll attack you, not because they're being motivated or moved by the mind of Christ that wants to pour out for you and serve you, but because they're being motivated by an entity that exists in, in the realm of consciousness as a live, as a God unto itself, but not a God that created us, a God that we created. That depends upon your loyalty for survival. So that sucker gets mean. Mean-spirited and comes after you. And you know it's true. There were people in my life didn't give a hill of beans when I was burnt out in ministry. Didn't care if I was having personal problems and struggles in my life. Headed for the hills and got mad at me when I went on sabbatical because we don't do that. Never once called and said, hey, how are you doing? Never an email. Hey, um, are you still struggling? Are you still having a hard time? Never a note to say I'm praying for you. I post one post on Facebook that says I don't believe in eternal conscious torment anymore. And my inbox blows up with people who are suddenly concerned about my soul. Same people who knew I was burnout, same people who knew I was struggling and didn't talk to me for three years. Fifteen minutes after I break with their group consensus on the issue of eternal conscious torment, boom, brother, we're praying for you. We love you. These friends of yours who haven't talked to you in three years that you opened up to like you didn't open up to anybody. You didn't know that part. They, they totally abandoned you. They love you too and they're concerned about your soul. Why? Because I broke with the group consensus. Not because I was suffering. It wasn't coming from love. It wasn't coming from care for me. Because if it had been, they would have been contacting me before. It came because I broke with the group consensus. And that exposes then which entity they're actually following. And us too. Us too. I'm, I'm not, I know it, it might feel like I'm coming across like because I'm hurt. I'm not hurt about it. I understand it. It's just so clear to me. And I want to see the power of that philosophy broken off the minds and the hearts of people because it's taken them captive and it has prevented them from connecting with the Lamb that was slain with seven eyes and seven horns and with the power of the Christ consciousness so that the church can come into the reality of who the church is called to be. <laughs> Let me give you... <laughs> So this, this entity, 
Think about this. Think about the lamb, nature. And let me, let me read something to you, and this is where I'll close. Because it seems to me that people are more upset with me because I don't believe in hell anymore as a place of eternal conscious torment than any other single thing. I mean, I've pushed the envelope and preached some radical stuff over the years, but this, this, this. And I, I hear crazy stuff. People say you believe this, believe that. I, I've never even thought that. Like people just start talking or something. Or, 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 there are elemental spirits influence the minds of people because they don't want the secret about who you are to get out. Because everything will change. It's a game changer. This comes from, this is an older book. It comes from the book, a book entitled, I'd recommend reading it if you're, well, I don't recommend reading it unless you're have insomnia. But it's called the, the origin of the doctrine of eternal conscious torment. The history and or, the origin and history of the doctrine of eternal conscious torment. Uh, it, the funny thing is, it's written by one of these Bible scholars that all my friends that like left, <laughs> um, they they read his stuff when they when they're breaking down the Greek because he's one of the most well respected Greek scholars. Ever. Can't remember which, which guy wrote it, but anyway, it doesn't matter. He's talking about, he's really talking about this idea that that God is a God that was created out of human beings' projections. A God that subjects people to eternal conscious torment. Here's what he says. A further illustration may be found in the Crusades against the Alba, let's see if I get this right, Albigenses, Albigenses. Now, who were the Albigenses? It's in the 13th century. They, so the Albigenses were a group in southern France that broke with the group consensus of Orthodox Christianity, or at that time, obviously, broke with Rome, broke with the Roman Catholic Church. So the Pope sent crusades. It, it literally was a French civil war. In the 13th century, one of the darkest and bloodiest pages in the history of any religion, Christian or pagan. The sacrifices of the Goth and Mexican and revolting cruelties of the Polynesian and uh, this other group are scarcely equal to the savage butcheries and the shocking barbarities inflicted by the Catholic crusader in the name of God upon this gentle and virtuous people. No passage in the history of man is more to the purpose of our argument or more conclusive of the direct influence of religious faith upon the temperament and character than that in which we are recorded, I'm sorry, than that in which are recorded the persecutions and sufferings of these unhappy reformers. (laughs) Throughout the whole of this merciless crusade and amid all its scenes of burning and desolation, of murder and torture, the cry of the ruthless priest was heard, quote, it is for the glory of God. And the brutal multitude, believing that they were doing God's service and securing their own salvation by the slaughter of heretics, rushed forward to the bloody work with the ferocity of tigers and the joy of Tertullian. Tertullian was the first church father to talk about eternal conscious torment. How much he would rejoice seeing his enemies there. Sismondi says, speaking of the deliberate savageness of the monks who occupied the pulpits and urged on the people to this diabolical work, they, quote, showed how every vice might be expiated by crime, how remorse might be expelled by the flames of their piles, how the soul polluted with every shameful passion might become pure and spotless by bathing in the blood of the heretics. By continuing to preach the crusade, they impelled each year waves of new fanatics upon the miserable provinces. 
And they compelled their chiefs to to recommence the war in order to profit by the fervor of those who still demanded human victims and required blood to effect their salvation. Quote, they represented this inoffensive people as the outcasts of the human race and as special objects of divine hatred and vengeance and no devotional exercise, no prayer or praise, no act of charity or mercy was half so acceptable to God as the murder of these heretics. The more zealous, therefore, the multitude were for the glory of God, the more ardently they labored for the destruction of the heretics and the better Christians they thought themselves to be. And if at any time they felt a moment of pity or terror whilst assisting at their punishment, they thought it a revolt of the flesh, which they confessed at the tribunal of penitence, nor could they get quit of their remorse till their priests had given them absolution. So in other words, if they felt pity on killing these heathens, they had to go confess it as sin, and they couldn't get over it until they'd been absolved by the priest for feeling pity. Among them all, not a heart could be found accessible to pity. Equally inspired by fanaticism and the love of war, they believed that the sure way to salvation was through the field of carnage. Seven bishops who followed the army had blessed their standards and their arms and would be engaged in prayer for them while they were attacking the heretics. Thus did they advance, indifferent whether to victory or martyrdom, certain that either would issue in the reward which God himself had destined for them. And most frightfully did they do the work of religious butchery and cruelty, like the Scandinavian priests, wherever they went, they desolated with fire and sword, sparing neither age nor sex nor condition. They even wreaked their furious vengeance on inanimate objects, destroying houses, trees, vines, and every useful thing they could reach, leaving all behind a wide and blackened waste marked by smoldering and smoking ruins and dead and putrefying bodies of murdered men, women, and children. At the taking of the Beziers, the wretched sufferers fled to the churches for protection, but their savage enemies slaughtered them on the very altars and filled the sanctuaries with their mangled bodies. And when the last living creature within the walls had been slain and the houses plundered, the crusaders set fire to the city in all directions at once and so made of it one huge funeral pile. Not a soul was left alive nor a house left standing. During the slaughter, one of the knights inquired of a fierce priest how they should distinguish between the Catholics and the heretics. Kill them all, was his reply. The Lord will know his own. In this one affair, from 20 to 30,000 human beings perished because of the religion of their butcherers assured them that such bloody sacrifices would be acceptable to God. Shocking, isn't it? Does that sound like the mind of Christ? Does that sound like the Lamb of God? then what was driving such savagery? You know what they were saying? God was going to burn them in hell anyway because they were heretics. And the more their belief system spread, the more people would be going to hell. So they actually became convinced that they were doing God's service. And logically, it makes sense. If God's going to keep them alive and torture them for all eternity, what difference does it make if you go out and burn them now? That is a thought form that is out of control. So the other thing that, that like just upset people was when I said not everything in the Bible actually happened. Because somehow they want to believe in a God who endorses that kind of thing. Because you find that in the Old Testament too. Go into the land of Canaan and slaughter every man, woman, and child. Now, I believe that the Israelites believed that. But was that coming out of the mystery that had been hidden from ages and from generations? 
But we'd rather cling to a perfect book and a diabolical God than accept that maybe we need to read the book the way it was intended to be read as multivocal and a progressive revelation of what God and humanity is like. I'd rather have a perfect book and a diabolical God than a perfect God and a book that takes some work to sort out and understand what's a statement of truth and what isn't. Why? Because there is a philosophy that depends upon group consensus and transference from generation to generation and evil elemental spiritual forces for its very survival. But not upon Christ. So I feel like Elijah saying, choose this day whom you shall serve. You're going to serve a God like that? Or are you going to take on to yourself the nature of the Lamb? And let's be honest, it's easier to be ferocious and bitter and divisive and animalistic at times than it is to let the gentleness of the Lamb and taking upon something upon yourself where you're pouring it out in service. One's a philosophy that takes you captive. The other is the mystery that's been hidden from ages and from generations. Let's stand up. I hope I didn't leave you on a downer. It wasn't my intent. I know it's sobering. I know it's sobering. And contrary to what some people might think, I'm not trying to create an us-against-them mentality. I'm just trying to help you make sense of the unseen forces that are behind events so that you can be wiser and more discerning in your own personal choices for your own personal outcomes. Does that make sense to you? That's really my intention. So, Heavenly Father, we thank you today for grace and mercy and love. Thank you for the presence of the Lamb in the center of the throne, in the center of every heavenly being, in the center of every human being, and in the center of our own souls and hearts. Thank you that you love us, that you've redeemed us, Thank you that we're eternally secure. Thank you that you are nothing like that God of torture and vengeance and domination. And help us to cleanse our consciousness. (laughs) In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. Have a great day.